Our text for this evening is Micah chapter 7, last chapter of that book we've been going through over the past couple years or so, uh, as I've had opportunity to preach in the evenings. Micah chapter 7. Hear the word of the Lord. Woe is me, for I am like the fruit pickers, like the grape gatherers. There is not a cluster of grapes to eat, or a first ripe fig which I, ha- which I crave. The godly person has perished from the land, and there is no upright person among them. All of them lie in wait for bloodshed. Each of them hunts the other with a net. Concerning evil, both hands do it well. A prince asks also the judge for a bribe, and a great man speaks the desire of his soul. So they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright like a thorn hedge. The day when you post your watchmen, your punishment will come. Then their confusion will occur. Do not trust a neighbor. Do not have confidence in a friend. From her who lies in your bosom, guard your lips. For son treats father contemptuously. Daughter rises up against her mother. Daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. But as for me, I will watch expectantly for the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Do not rejoice over me, O my enemy. Though I fall, I will rise. Though I dwell in darkness, the Lord is a light for me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord. Because I have sinned against him until he pleads my case and executes justice for me. He will bring me out to the light, and I will see his righteousness. Then my enemy will will see, and shame will cover her who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look on her. At that time she will be trampled down like mire of the streets. It will be a day for building your walls. On that day will your boundary be extended. It will be a day when they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt, from Egypt even to the Euphrates, even from the sea to the sea and mountain to mountain. And the earth will become desolate because of her inhabitants on account of the fruit of their deeds. Shepherd your people with your scepter, the flock of your possession, which dwells by itself in the woodlands, in the midst of a fruitful field. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead, as in the days of old. As in the days when you came out from the land of Egypt, I will show you miracles. Nations will see and be ashamed of all their might. They will put their hand on their mouths. Their ears will be deaf. They will lick the dust like a serpent, like reptiles of the earth. They will come trembling out of their fortresses. To the Lord our God, they will come in dread, and they will be afraid before you. Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious acts of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread out our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham, which you swore to our forefathers From the days of old. So ends the reading of God's word. 
Now, I know most of us here have cell phones. All of us have cell phones, I'm sure, or all the adults do, and most of the kids too. And uh, maybe your homes are no longer equipped with landlines. Uh, maybe a few uh, of them are. Um, and I don't know if you ever played around with those old landlines with the cord on it, you, if you pulled them apart or whatever. But you, if you do, you will notice inside of them there are actually four wires. Now, I'm, I'll say this. If, if there's any young one listening here and you still have a landline, please don't pull apart your, uh, your, the phone line in your house, okay? That's what I'm suggesting here. But if you've ever gotten inside of one, you'll notice there, there are these four wires um, that are sort of twisted together there. One is black, one is red, one is green, and one is yellow. Now, if you were to cut this cord apart and take these wires apart from the, one another, uh, you might not realize that they were ever together. And there are four different colors. What did they have in common? And yet, you have to have these four wires in there in order for the message to get through uh, to the telephone for it to work properly. And if you look at the book of Micah, it's a lot like that. Um, at the outset of the sermon series, uh, um, I, we began looking at Micah. Uh, we, we, I mentioned how Martin Luther uh, was a bit frustrated by the prophets because it seems like they just meandered about talking about this thing and that thing and uh, not uh, necessarily clearly connecting point to point as they went along. Uh, they seemed to Luther to be seeking out a lot of things that didn't seem to fit together all that well. But as you look closely through the book of Micah and you examine the themes that, that are expounded there, you find out that these things that seem at times to be odds, at odds with one another are very much woven together into one cord, as if you will. So our text this evening, you'll see a number of things which at first seem at odds with one another. You see God's wrath. You can see the people's sin. And then you see God's love and tenderness and the people's salvation. <clears throat> so now, as you consider the depths of sin into which the people of Israel have fallen and then looked at the heights which the Lord brings them despite of their rebellion, you should be prompted to speak in the way Micah does in verse 18, where he says, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of, for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love or to show mercy, as the uh, NIV puts it. This is an appropriate question uh, for a prophet named Micah. Uh, Micah in Hebrew means... Who is like Yahweh or Jehovah? And, and as names in the Bible often are very important, actually, if you look at the meaning of them, for understanding that particular character in the Bible, uh, I think it's no less important to understand that question that Micah raises in his own name, which is, who is like God? Who is like Jehovah? As we look together at this passage and see the sin of the people of God and the salvation of God, let us be let our hearts be warmed with, the, with this question. Who is a God like Jehovah? And the answer is, no one is like God. No one is like our God. No one is like Yahweh. For he is supreme over all who have been called or call themselves a God. 
He is supreme in judgment. He is supreme in deliverance. He's supreme in pastoral care. And he's supreme in forgiveness. And so let's consider these four points this evening together. First of all, that God is supreme in judgment of sin. If you're thinking about these four wires, you've got these four different colored wires. Let's say here's the black wire, so to speak. You know, the supremacy in God's judgment of sin. Uh, this chapter begins with Micah confessing the sin of his people or speaking of the sins of the people and really confessing it on behalf of the people. Verses 1 and 2, he confesses that there are no longer any godly men in his nation. Now, obviously, he's engaging in a little bit of hyperbole uh, because, well, presumably, Micah is a godly man, and there are, there are some others who genuinely trust in the God of Israel. But the image is rather clear. Looking for a righteous man in Israel is like going out to a field that has just been harvested of its figs and looking for fruit. You don't find any. They've all been, they're all gone. They've all been taken away. Field described is empty of all the good fruit, and there's nothing left except for that which can no longer be eaten. It's not good for anything. So likewise, the godly has perished from the earth as far as they're concerned, um, like the good fruit from a field that has just been harvested. And the picture becomes even bleaker as you go on to, uh, to look at what remains in the field. Men are depicted as, as hunting their own brothers. The rulers demanding gifts and judge accepting bribes, powerful, powerful dictating what they desire. And they all conspire together to do evil because not just one hand, but both of these hands are skilled and trained and ready to do evil. The best of them, the text says, is like a briar or a hedge, which is to say the best of them are at the very least an obstacle to doing that which is righteous. <clears throat> so this is not a happy picture uh, that we have presented before us, uh, not a real happy, positive way to start off the chapter. It's very much re reminiscent of the beginning of the book of Romans, if you, if you recall that book. Um, if you look at the first few chapters, especially maybe Romans uh, 3, 11 through 18, where it speaks about how all have turned aside from God, all have done wrong, and not one, not a single one does that which is good, at least by nature. So the text is also similar to the beginning of Romans. If you closely examine what follows in regard to the punishment of people, the text says that confusion is at hand, and that is their punishment. Why? Well, because Confusion is the normal outcome of the total breakdown of society that is being envisioned. The Lord here is giving people over to their own sin and allowing them to sink more deeply into the mire of that sin. Uh, just as Paul speaks in Romans 1.24, the punishment for sin is often sin itself. There's nothing good about committing sin and giving people over to their sin is an act of judgment of God. And all of this constant dishonesty, violence, injustice re results in a land so filled with wickedness that no one can trust anyone. Verses 5 and 6 put it this way. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies are the men's, men of his own house. 
As you read through these words, you may, they may strike you in many ways like a description of our own day or of what seems to come, be coming, coming in our own land. Apt description of the way things presently are. And no doubt there's much of that. Maybe you're tempted to be saying, you know, you look out at the world and, and history and you say, Every, everything just keeps on getting worse and worse. And uh, this, this younger generation, I don't, I don't know what's going to become of it, you know. What's interesting, it's like you, you lead back in history and it's, it seems like people are always saying that. It's, it's getting worse and worse and this next, this, well, I don't know what to do with this younger generation. It's, it's a mess. But uh, it's good to be reminded here that uh, total depravity wasn't invented in the 20th or 21st century, uh, but it's been with us since the fall of man. Wickedness existed in Israel and it existed, it exists throughout history. And so it shouldn't surprise us when we see all kinds of wickedness within the world. But maybe more poignantly for us this evening, as you consider these words, all this sin that that is described in this text, is that this provides for you a window into your own heart. As Micah confesses here the sins of the people of Israel, to some extent he confesses his own sin, your sin, and my sin. Now, it's true that <clears throat> you and I may not sin in the same outward manner as what's described in this passage. Our sins might not be so obvious. We may be good at hiding them. But if we're not for the grace of God working in our hearts, we too would act in a, a likewise manner. If the Lord were to give us over to our sin, we would act as beastly as those described in this text. It's easy to look at this text and point it out to the world and say, oh, things are going to pot. Everything is going badly. It's getting worse and worse. Scriptures always invite us to look inward at ourselves and not just outward at the world. We ourselves fundamentally have the same problems. The interesting thing about the judgment that's being endured by the people here is not that the Lord is afflicting them with boils or locusts or depression and an enemy, although that was going to come. If you look at the text, of course, we're, we're constantly being reminded throughout the book of Micah that God is bringing Assyria and then Babylon to, to bring judgment upon the people of Israel. But in the previous chapter, verse 13, it says, the Lord has already begun to destroy the nation. And yet Assyria had not yet come and invaded the land. The manner in which the Lord was destroying them, and therefore bring judgment upon them, is simply by giving them over to their base, wicked desires. There are many men and so-called gods of pagan religion, and yet who brings judgment to men in this way? Who brings judgment upon his own people in this way? Through their, uh, giving them over to their own sin. The Bible is unique in this, if you look at the, look at the ancient religions, you compare to some of the other documents from, from the ancient religions, and the Bible is really kind of unique, and it talks about God bringing judgment on his own nation. It's always the opposite. The, God, the gods of the nations are always supporting the people who, who are supposedly belong to their nation, and um, it's always a problem of something outside of them 
that is the problem. It's not their God, and God's not bring, their God is not bringing judgment on them. But rather, here in the Bible, God speaks about how he's bringing judgment on his own people. And he's doing it in a very unique way, and he's giving them over to their own sin. Who else has the sovereign ability to bring about such things? Whether God of pagan religion claims to have done such things and then judging them by letting them do what they want. What other God is faithful in judging the sins of his people like the God of the Bible? The answer is none. The Lord alone does these things. Just as the word Micah reminds us, who is like God? No one. Therefore, you ought to greatly esteem the Lord and humble yourself before him, confessing your sins. But if God's judgments are supreme, his deliverances are even greater. And so, bring us to our second wire, the red wire, God's supremacy and deliverance. <clears throat> Mike, in verse 7, after acknowledging the judgment that's coming on Israel and has already begun to engulf Israel, Micah speaks with confidence that the Lord will deliver him and hear his prayer. So much so that he can look to his enemies and say to them in verses 8 and 9, Rejoice not over me, my O oh, my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in the darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear into indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my case and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. So in spite of the fact that there is this impending judgment coming upon the nation and he's going to get caught up in it to a degree as well, Micah remains confident that there will eventually be deliverance from judgment. And therefore, the enemies of Israel have no cause for gloating. Verse 15 recalls the days of Moses when the Lord delivered Israel from the land of Egypt. And he assured, it is assured because of the Lord's past faithful dealings that he will continue to bless Israel again, to get bless people, God's people again. The Lord has many times brought chastising and unpleasant times upon the people of God in order to build them up in faith or to chasten them for their sin. But the Lord all, has always brought his people out from such ordeals into a better place. Micah knows the covenant promises of God and sees proof of his faithfulness in the history of Israel. Therefore, Micah can say in verse 10, then my enemy will see, and shame will cover her who said to me, Where is your, your, the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her. Now she will be trampled down like the mire of the streets. So often in our own lives, um, we may feel the ravages and pains and, and sorrows of, of, of this life. We may feel downtrodden by unbelievers or maybe just the common ills of, of, of this life, sickness and, and death, and, and the frustration with our own sin. Maybe times you literally hear the taunts of unbelievers who look at the plight of Christians and mock their trusted God because it seems that he does not answer their prayers. Yet, as Micah has confidence that the Lord was faithful to his people, so ought you to have the same confidence as well. The Lord does not make promises that he does not keep. And he backs up his promises with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
The Lord has proven himself time and time again that he delivers his people, delivers on his promises, even going so far as to deliver up his own son to secure an eternal place for his people, that his promises might be filled to the uttermost. Even if the world seems to get darker and darker, God shines brighter and calls the people to himself throughout the whole world. And so even if it may seem like few people are coming to Christ here in America, there are many places in the world where people continue to come in great numbers. Yes, the Lord's promises are filled in his timing, which is to your good. So we may not see things happen maybe on the time scale or time, time frame that we would like to see them. At times it may take a great deal of faith in what the Lord has done for you in the past to believe what he's going to do for you in the future. It may be difficult to see the light at the end of the tunnel, but the scriptures are clear. God has been faithful and will continue to do so in the future. For the Lord has always had the gracious goal of the deliverance of his people in whatever trial that he places them in or places his church in. So the Lord is supreme in judgment, but he's also supreme in deliverance as well. But thirdly, our third wire here, the green wire, supremacy in pastoral care. Uh, judgment and deliverance are prominent wires in the book of Micah, but also pastoral care is, is, a, is, a, is something that's wound throughout the text of Micah as well. And so I'm going to be brief here, though, as our text is. Here in this chapter, Micah calls upon the Lord to shepherd your people with your staff. This is a prayer, the answer of which Micah has already prophesied would come to pass, being very directly answered in the future. If you remember our, our sermon um, on Micah chapter 5, 4, it speaks of the one to come from Bethlehem, the Messiah, who would be the true good shepherd. This one would shepherd the power of Jehovah. Micah prays here that the people of God would again be able to graze in Bashan and Gilead, which is to say that they would have their former dominion returned to them after they're taken away in judgment. Now, although this may have been part and fulfilled when Israel returned from exile, it's more fulfill, fully fulfilled at the coming of the Messiah in, in, that was prophesied in Micah chapter 5, and even more fully uh, will be more, even more fully fulfilled when Christ comes again a second time. For he truly came to, sh to the world to shepherd his people in the fullest sense of the term and will come again to shepherd his people again. I don't want to dwell at length on uh, Psalm 23 this evening, but it does give us a, a fuller sense of what a shepherd does. and Therefore, it's useful in understanding this text a bit about what it is that for what Micah is praying. In verse 2 of Psalm 23, it says that the shepherd would cause his sheep to lie down in green pastures. Now, according to one modern-day shepherd, it's very difficult to get sheep to lay down. And there are four different things that were necessary for are necessary for that to happen. First, it's, it's necessary to free them from all fear from predators because of their timidity. Uh, it, they need to be free from all friction from others within the flock because of their social nature. 
They need to be free from all agitation, from pests such as flies and, and, and parasites. And lastly, they need to be free from the need to look for food. In other words, they must be fed. So the long and the short of it is that in the final analysis, the Lord Jesus, the good shepherd, provides us and provides his flock with all of that which his flock needs. Now, as an infinite God, Jesus does so perfectly. Therefore, you may have confidence to rest in Christ, knowing that you have all that you need in him, even if we see to see dark days around us. So our God is supreme in judgment, he's supreme in deliverance, and he is supreme in pastoral care. Lastly, he is supreme in forgiveness. The sort of the yellow wire here, the golden wire at the end, in verses 18 through 20. The book of Micah ends in quite a different way than it begins. And yet there is a very clear connection between the beginning of the book and the end of the book. Micah 1 and 2 speak about the gross nature of the sins of Israel and the hypocrisy to which even the religious of the nation had, be, had succumbed. It speaks about the judgment and anger of the Lord because of these atrocities. In our verse, our text here in verse 18 says that he does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love, or as the NIV puts it, delights to show mercy. Now that's an amazing thought. That the holy and just God of the Bible, who judges sin, Yahweh our God delights to show mercy. He delights to forgive. He delights to have steadfast love upon his people. He delights to forgive the wicked, rebellious nation of Israel. He delights to forgive you and I. He delights in it, not just he's willing to do it. Now, how many of you can really talk about delighting to forgive other people? You know, if somebody wrongs you and they ask for forgiveness, how do I have? Okay, I'll forgive you, right? And then, of course, you kind of can keep a little bit of that in your heart, and maybe when they do something wrong, or you do something wrong to them, you make remind them of the fact that you forgave them as well. So are you really delighting in it? But God here says he delights in this. He delights to forgive. God who is absolutely holy, who has the right to expect perfect obedience from his people and receives in response the sewage of his people's sin instead, delights to forgive. What an amazing thought that is. It says he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. And Jesus has truly done this on the cross when he took our sins upon himself and suffered the judgment for them. He has taken upon himself the mire of your sin and cast it far away from you so that you who trust in him might not suffer the wrath of God, all the judgments that are described in this book, which you justly deserve, and rather gives you eternal life. And now all these sins are tread underfoot and cast into the sea. The last verse of Micah says, You will show faithfulness to Jacob, 
and steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from days of old. For Micah reminds his readers of the covenant that God has made with his people from Abraham, their forefather, and that the Lord will be faithful in love to those who are his as the New Testament expounds those who are his true descendants of Abraham by faith. The Lord has pledged or sworn it from long ago. And he will not break his promise. Therefore, you who are believers in Jehovah ought to take courage. The Lord is on your side and he has taken your sin and thrown it into the depths of the sea and delights to have done so because of his great love for you. So as we close, let's look again at verse 18 where Micah asks, Who is a God like you who pardons sins and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? Who is a God like our God and who is like Christ, his son? No one. No one is supreme in judgment, deliverance, pastoral care, and forgiveness like our God. There is no one who takes sin as seriously as God or delights to forgive that sin like our God. Who would think of a God who would deliver and shepherd his people, giving them everything that they need when all they deserve is his contempt? Who would have conceived of God and his God out of his gospel without it having been revealed in the scriptures? Who would have thought of winding these four wires together as Micah does here in this chapter? No one. Therefore, he is worthy of your worship and praise. And let us therefore do exactly that by bowing and praying to him and then by singing his praise. Amen. Let's let's close together in prayer and then singing more prayer. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you uh, for your word. We thank you of the reminder of our sin, the a reminder from this chapter that we all must must always be looking at through this window that we see in the scriptures into our own hearts and see the, the, the dirtiness that is there. But at the same time, as we reflect on the, the sin from which we need to repent, Lord, let us be encouraged to, to believe that Jesus is supreme in forgiveness and delights to forgive our, our sins. Oh, Father, we pray that you'd forgive us afresh this evening. Delight in, in doing that again for us and, and continue to, to cast our sins far away from us, that we might not walk in them, but might flee from them. Oh, Father, give us joy and and confidence, knowing that you have taken our sins away and cast them far away into the sea. Father, thank you for Jesus Christ who makes that, accomplishes that for us. Father, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.